Uh, yeah, Lord, we are no less needful of what these children received from you, that this morning you would take us in your arms. You would bless us, that you would lay your hands on us. Uh, you actually uh, don't uh, create merely the, the potential for that in church. You promise it. Uh, you assure us that you have provided your people with a means of grace whereby we receive good news. Uh, there's not some weeks we get good news and then other weeks we get bad news. We always get good news. And uh, we want to trust that, especially in these places in the Bible that we might be tempted to uh, skip over, that are difficult, that are hard to understand for us, uh, that speak, you know, for some of us into um, tough stuff in our life. Um, we want to remember that there is not, that in Christ there is never a time you are not loving us. And so, uh, Lord, let us remember that. Uh, Holy Spirit, come, work through the preaching uh, on our own and out of our own resources as preachers and as listeners. We're inadequate for it all, uh, but you have assured us that you are present and at work and that you will, in fact, give us more than we could ever ask or imagine. And so uh, we're greedy for that this morning, uh, and uh, that's okay because you always give more. So, Lord, um, would you bless us through this word today in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think it was around sixth or seventh grade, uh, I learned the, the term oxymoron. Um, you know, and after the class was done giggling, you know, at a word that had moron contained within it. Um, you know, we learned that it's a figure of speech in which two contradictory terms are joined uh, to, you know, communicate a singular truth. So, you know, terms like open secret, deafening silence, pretty ugly. Um, I was kind of asking Kit the other day if large crowd counts as, counts as a oxymoron. We're not sure about that. But, but you know, going through Mark, um, I, I kind of feel like I want to add another one to the list, and that is the, that is the term simple question. Feels like an oxymoron in this gospel. You know, as we've been going through this, a lot of questions have been put to Jesus. A lot of them, you know, seem straightforward, and then you find out they are anything but. You know, they are thorny, they are complicated, they are declarations, they're challenges, they're contradictions. Uh, and our passage today begins with a question that, you know, at, at first glance looks simple. Question from the Pharisees. Is it lawful uh, for a man to divorce his wife? Uh, again, seems relatively straightforward. It's a yes or no question. Uh, lawful or not? Uh, it's not even, you know, Jesus, hey, uh, what do you think about divorce? Um, it is uh, a difficult question, and in fact, Mark tells us that it's not a simple question. It, uh, he, he tells us that they are testing Jesus here. Um, in other words, they're not seeking an answer from Jesus. They are seeking an outcome for Jesus. And um, at first, it's unclear uh, why, why this particular topic, why this particular point, until we begin to pay attention to not only what they say, but where they say it. Uh, Mark tells us they're down by the Jordan River, they're in the wilderness, a crowd's come out to see and hear Jesus, and all those details connect you immediately to an earlier account that had to do with John the Baptist. Um, they, are, they are not only in the location, but they're in a similar situation uh, as the one John was in. Um, and in that situation, all of that resulted in bad things for John his imprisonment, and ultimately his execution. 
And even though, you know, pretty much everyone is familiar of, of what happened to John, it's easy to lose, it's easy to forget why it happened. Um, John got arrested and executed not because he was baptizing, not because of bold preaching. It was because he took the step of criticizing Herod Antipas for divorcing his wife, uh, for marrying his brother Philip's wife. And John, um, you know, didn't challenge Herod Antipas on, on political grounds. He challenged him on marital grounds. Uh, and on those grounds, he uh, made the case that Herod could not be Israel's legitimate king. That's what got him in trouble. Now, earlier in Jesus' ministry back, very early on, we're told the Pharisees were plotting uh, about how to destroy him. And so what we're seeing here is a plot being put into motion, uh, showing up in the same place in a very similar situation with the very same issue that did John in. Uh, and, and they are clearly hoping for the same results uh, for Jesus. So it's not a simple question. It's not, you know, they're not interested in talking about the Bible with Jesus. They're out to trap him. They're hoping to get him on a treason charge, just like John got caught in a treason charge. But all the same, Jesus takes their question on its face. He answers um, them with a question of his own. And the question is this, what did Moses, and Moses is kind of shorthand for the first five books of the Bible, what, what does the Bible tell you? What, what did Moses command you? And their answer uh, is this, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, before we unpack that answer about God's word, I want to pay attention to their approach to God's word, Okay. Jesus asks, what does God command? And the Pharisees answer with what God concedes. Just to put it another way, Jesus asks them about what God's word promotes, and their answer has to do with what God's word permits. That's an important distinction. You know, there was a time in my ministry life where I pastored a congregation that was largely single people. And, you know, and in that ministry context, lots of conversations about dating and, you know, a common theme, I had this conversation more than once. You know, someone would come to me, they're in a dating relationship, and they would say, you know, Pastor, what can we do, you know, physically in our dating relationship and, it's, and it not be sin? You know, so the question wasn't focused on what's promoted. The question wasn't, Pastor, I'm now in a new dating relationship. How might I, in this relationship, pursue it in such a way that it glorifies God and brings honor to the person I'm dating? Instead, so it's not a question about what's promoted. They want to know what's permitted. You know, how can I get as close to the sin line without crossing it? You know, and that makes all the difference in the world, right? And it's, it's just hard to overstate how critical that is when it comes to the Bible. Not just the answers we find in the Bible, but our basic approach to the Bible. You know, so that before we even get to the biblical answer, you know, we would be wary and, and do a little gut check on our approach. You know, are we, are we looking to the Bible as God's word, as his love toward us that would promote that which is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise, or is it reduced to this manual that would keep me you know, reasonably happy with, you know, while avoiding the hazards. 
And, and I just want to say, you know, I like putting it in those terms of relationship because for me, and I think this is just generally true, my best relationships are not the people who just tell me what I want to hear, who just tell me, you know, just affirm me up and down. I basically begin to think this is a person who's not being honest with me. I begin to think this is a person who's not really out for my best interest. They're just trying to kind of maintain, you know, the surface thing. The best relationships, right, are the ones where people tell me, you know, the hard truths. Not only that, but it includes that. So the Bible's like that. It loves you too much to just, you know, tell you the things you want to hear. It tells you hard things too because, because God's love is toward you. So Jesus goes there. He, he asks what God commands. His posture towards the Bible in saying that is wholly positive. Uh, he, he, in other words, he, when he brings up what God commands, he's not saying, let's talk about God's harsh, random, and capricious rules. He is saying, let's look at how God loves people for our good. What does he promote in his word for our thriving? You know, however challenging that word may be for us. Now, the specific passage, the, the Pharisees are talking about the Bible. They quote it. Uh, they're quoting Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Um, and they summarize it. And, and the way they summarize it is, well, it's, let's just say it's interesting. Um, they say, you know, they summarize those four verses in this way. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate for divorce and send her away. You see, they are focused on the mechanics of dissolving a marriage. But they've left out the most important part of the passage. And the most important part is the mercy of God in putting this provision in place. You see, the certificate of divorce was in the law for, for this simple reason, to minimize the inevitable damage that could come upon mainly women uh, as a result of a divorce. Go back and read Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 today. It's all about pretty much protecting the wife. The central concern is that uh, in the dissolution of a marriage. So God allowed for the certificate of divorce in the interest of the party most likely to get crushed, most likely to get exploited by protecting her from being easily discarded by her husband. The man, you know, couldn't say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and she's out of the house, and then... You know, it just becomes, he said, she said. No, there must be a deliberative legal process in which an actual certificate was given as a means of protection, confirming this indeed was a valid divorce on proper grounds. And with that certificate, you're afforded legal protections. You know, being protected from being trafficked between men, documentation that would free her from accusation of adultery, were she to remarry, protecting the new marriage, from being destroyed by an ex-husband who wakes up one day and decides he'd like to have her back. Jesus, you know, won't lose sight of that, of the fact that this mercy is there. But, but we need to be clear, it is mercy because of tragedy, the, the tragedy of broken marriage. Uh, you know, so instead of taking a microscope to, you know, the minutia of Deuteronomy, Jesus says, let's look at the creational majesty of Genesis. His answer's from Genesis. He wants to focus on God's purpose in creation and making men and women in his image and instituting marriage for their mutual benefit should they be called to marriage. 
So he's, he's like, let's not look to the end of marriage and the procedures necessary to dismantling it. Let's look to the beginning of marriage and the glory of what God was up to in creating it. And so he continues, and he's really, they've answered his question, but he's going to answer his own question. What did Moses command? And he does that by summarizing Genesis 1 and 2, reminding them that from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now, when Jesus says from the beginning of creation, he's basically saying, I don't want to focus on how things are. I want to focus on how they ought to be. Not, not, not on the brokenness, but on the beauty. Uh, so he looks to God's command, a command that begins with God made them feel... May, God made them male and female. This is part of the command, and and it's easy to kind of overlook that because it's sort of not in the imperative. It's in the indicative. God made them male and female. But this is part of the command. That is to say that being created in God's image, male and female, is not incidental. It's It's not accidental. It's not passive. There's something to be done in it. There's something to be lived out in that. To enjoy in that, to be, in other words, to be created in the image of God comes with a calling from God to image him in all of who we are and all of what we do. And, and you know, this is captured in the very first line of our confession, or of our catechism, rather. You know, what's, what is humanity's grand purpose? To enjoy God, uh, to glorify God, and to enjoy him forever. That's the calling in being created in God's image. This gets fleshed out later in the gospel in another confrontation with the Pharisees, another one where they're trying to trap him, another one where they're trying to catch him in something seditious, this time not about marriage, but God help us, about taxes. And, you know, so they ask him, hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And, you know, they know that they've got him. If he says yes, he's made an ally of Rome and an enemy of Israel. If he says no, um, they've got him on sedition. So he says, neither. He says, does anybody have a coin? And then he holds it up, a denarius, and he says, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they all said, well, it's Caesar. And to that he said, okay, well, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. And Mark records that they marveled at that answer. And the reason they marveled at that answer is because the connection was clear, that the things that are Caesar's have his image on them, and and the things that are God's have their image on them. That is to say, you know, the things that are God's aren't a what, they're a who. People stamped with his image, human beings like you and me, we're, in that sense, Jesus is saying, you're the coins. You're, You're stamped with the image of the one to whom you belong, you, you, you belong to him. You're made to go into circulation for his glory, for our good, for your thriving. The image we bear, of course, is that of the triune God. Who It's not even sufficient to say he lives in relationship. We might say he is the paradigm of relationship. He exists eternally and perfectly in ongoing honor and enjoyment and submission to the other freely and forever, giving himself away for the good of the other, for the glory of the other. You know, and so we're already onto much bigger things than your marital status and my marital status, okay? 
Everyone is in this relationship, right? Male and female, made in God's image. So Jesus is showing them that there is a glory to marriage that applies to us all, that exceeds our cultural customs, our social arrangements, and, and, and again, our marital status. That, that marriage isn't a creation of human culture, you know, for us to put together and take apart as we will with the hopes that God will bless whatever we decide to do with it and however we decide to do it. But instead, Jesus is saying, let's, in the beginning, it was conceived by God, created by God, and it comes with a calling from God for his glory and our good. And that's why Ephesians, in Ephesians 5, Paul expands on this. He picks up on the very same passage Jesus is commenting on and identifies marriage as a profound mystery. That, that is a reflection of Christ's love for his people. It's a reflection. It's a shadow of the truer and greater relationship we were created for, a relationship with Jesus Christ in which we get to enjoy his lavish grace, his self-giving love for his people forever and ever, right? So God created something beautiful in making us male and female. He's issued a calling connected to that. And should we marry, being joined as male and female together into a one-flesh relationship, he creates a kind of a new person out of that. And that is why any marriage that, that kind of takes the shape of each person trying to get out of it something for themselves is so dang painful. It's so difficult. You know, it's often disastrous because it wasn't designed, you know, for self-fulfillment. It's designed for mutual service, Right? created for the glory of God and sharing it and enjoying that which works for our mutual benefit. And, and, and by the way, not just for ourselves, for the whole community. So divorce isn't God's intention for marriage. And I just want to say, actually, it's nobody's intention for marriage. You know, no one's ever gone to a wedding and, and gone, man, I really hope these, these people uh, eke out a wonderful 18 months. Nobody says that. We, you, everybody, from the bride and the groom to the guests, you know, are, are hoping that what they're witnessing, you know, is something that will last the entire life, you know, for years and years. And even, now I want to say, even if you've gone to weddings and you go, I don't know about this thing. Uh, you know, even if you're pained that these two particular people are getting married, that pain is because of a desire for a, a, a strong, lifelong bond, right? So, so Jesus doesn't focus on how best to dismantle the relation, relationship his focus is on how we might delight in it. Now, all that said, it is important to say, very important, that there are legitimate grounds for divorce in the Bible. There are. Mark 10 is, is far from the last word on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Um, there's a parallel account in Matthew 19, and Jesus includes there the grounds of sexual infidelity for divorce. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul includes desertion as a legitimate ground for divorce. Uh, desertion, by the way, being, meaning being a broader category, in my view, than someone just physically leaving the building, but would include things like physical abuse of the spouse and the children, unrepentant serial adultery, and of course, you know, the spouse actually leaving. And I think there's probably some other things that could be explored, you know, as de facto abandonment. In those cases, and perhaps others, the marriage vow has effectively been abandoned. It is a, a desertion. And those are situations where the Lord is merciful 
You know, and doesn't call us to perpetual suffering, but gives provision to dissolve the marriage. Now, look, these are thorny issues. These are painful. Um, there, I, I have no doubt many of us here have experienced, you know, this isn't just a Bible passage to unpack. This, you're talking about my life. We've experienced these things. Um, they've been painful, but I want to say it's critical not to base our ethics on thorny, painful situations, but instead on God's good intentions in His Word. So Jesus' intent, we not lose sight on why divorce occurs in the first place, and, and He gives a reason for it. What's at the bottom of every broken marriage? He says it's hardness of heart. This is not the first time hardness of heart has come up in Mark. It came up, uh, I think, most recently when the disciples were fighting in the boat. You might remember they, they got in the boat after Jesus fed the 5,000, and uh, they're going on this journey, and then nobody thought to bring bread. And uh, so uh, Mark says, you know, uh, they were fighting. Uh, that conflict had at its source a hard heart, and he makes the comment that it was because they forgot about the loaves. Uh, the loaves being the ones Jesus had just multiplied for the 5,000. In other words, this lavish grace that Jesus produced to go to work in a real-life, tangible situation of deprivation and hopelessness. They forgot about that. And our hearts are hard for the same reason. We lose sight of the faithfulness of the Lord, of His lavish grace in real-life situations of deprivation and hopelessness. We lose sight of that in our marriages, of His lavish grace, His faithfulness, even when what feels like less than nothing, even when the feelings of love aren't there, right? That's a feeling of deprivation, of hopelessness. And, and, and we often stay there, and the heart is hard. We lose sight, in fact, that there's actually only one faithful one in the marriage, just as there was one faithful one in that boat, and it's not the disciples, and it's not you and me, it's Jesus. So even though divorce is never commended in the Bible, it's allowed as a concession because of that, because of our hardness of heart, because we live in a fallen world where, where we regularly and readily fail to live up to the marriage command. And God enters in, He's very gracious in that. So the problem, it turns out, isn't with God's precepts, it's with God's people. And, and I know we're used to the language of breaking the law, breaking God's law, but in, in reality, you know, that language makes sense in a way, but let, me, let me refine it a bit. In reality, no one actually breaks God's law. The reality is we break ourselves on God's law. In, in other words, you know, you can no more break God's law in that sense, then you can break the laws of physics. You, you either work with them and thrive, or you don't, and, and, and you pay the price. God's law is inviolable. It's eternally true. Its integrity is unassailable. But in our hard-heartedness, in our determination to work around it, we accord with it and thrive, or we break ourselves. And you see this in how Jesus explains the marriage as the union in which two people are no longer two, but one flesh. And, and you, you sort of, it follows that the dismantling of a marriage and divorce does just the opposite. It causes the one to become two. And as so many of us have experienced, that can be deeply and terribly painful, like the ripping of flesh. 
And we see how painful it is when you come to verses 10, and 10 through 12, among, I think, one of the toughest verses in the New Testament. I came, one, I came across one writer this week who said that to even read these verses aloud in church is to open up oneself to the charge of being anti-Christian, to say nothing of preaching on them. Now, Jesus is in private with his disciples here, and they're asking him to explain what he said to the Pharisees earlier, and he expands on what he said before with the same approach as before, not focused on the particularities so much of, of ending a marriage as he is focused on the purpose of marriage. Um, and, and I suspect, you know, part of why the disciples are so confused and continue to query Jesus about what he said uh, is because he seems to have gotten stricter. You know, he's like stricter than the Pharisees on this point. At least it seems like that, you know. And maybe they're remembering back to when the Pharisees confronted Jesus and his disciples for not washing their hands before they were eating. And, and Jesus then allowed what the, these same guys were forbidding. But when it comes to the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, it looks like he's doing just the opposite. Um, you know, before he allowed what they were prohibiting, and now he's prohibiting what they allow. It's like he's gone from cool dad to grumpy, get off my lawn dad. But in fact, what's important to see is Jesus allows what is prohibited in one case and prohibits what's allowed in the other for the exact same reason. Whether it's legalistic hand washers looking to create new law to earn favor with God, or libertine easy divorcers looking to disregard God's law, Assuming so long as the correct paperwork is done, we remain in his favor. Jesus says that the heart of legalism and licentiousness is the same thing. It's the hard heart, the unclean heart. Both the legalistic habits and the licentious habits come from that heart that wants its own way, that wants to make its own rules, make its own life, save itself. And you might remember a couple of chapters ago, Jesus says, when you try to save yourself like that, you lose everything. Try to save your life, you lose your life. Legalistic moralism and libertine making it up as we go along both come from, the heart, from hearts needful of cleansing and needful of softening. So Jesus is calling us to contend, not with just these particular situations, but with the source, with the heart. You see, our sin always does more damage than we imagine because we were made for more than we imagined. And marriage is a bigger deal than we realize because it is connected to something much, much larger than our romantic relationships. It's connected to our Redeemer. We're made by God, we're made for God, and we are simply not at liberty to dismantle what He has designed outside of the concessions He allows in dissolving it because of our sin. He gave marriage for His glory and our good, and Jesus says that because it is His creation, because the two have become a one flesh union, a marriage can exist whether we say it does or not. And we can enter into other relationships even as the previous marital relationship remains. And incidentally, this is why unmarried people shouldn't get naked with someone sexually if they're not willing to be naked with them in every arena of life, being united with them in a covenant marriage. And, and same holds true for married people. A healthy sexual relationship is contingent on the rest of life being deeply, lovingly, emotionally unified. So, are you beginning to see how this touches really all of us? Married, single, unmarried, divorced, remarried. 
I was telling Kit yesterday that the nightmare for this sermon for me, here's my nightmare scenario, is if those of us who have managed to stay married congratulate ourselves, and those of us who have endured the pain of divorce feel crushed. That's the nightmare. I mean, I I just had a wedding anniversary. Um, I, I basically call my wedding anniversary the annual commemoration of Kit not leaving me. 27 years of my wife not leaving me. Praise God. You know, and at the same time, I have no doubt that we look at a passage like this and there are those among us who are asking ourselves, am I okay? And the last thing that I would ever want to do is pontificate from a pulpit or crush anyone's conscience. So, you know, if there's anything you've gone through, are going through in this area of life, you know, please don't go it alone. This is a big part of our calling as pastors is to walk through the thorny, heavy stuff that, you know, you may not otherwise share. So reach out to Greg or me, and we will walk through that together. Whatever our particular story, you know, what is true of all of us is there is much we have done that we can never undo. And that's not really the issue. What is absolutely critical is knowing that Jesus is never done with us. So so we need to see the great tragedy in this passage, actually, is not divorce. The great tragedy is the hard heart. For some of us, divorce will always be part of that story. It will always be part of that thing we can never undo. But Jesus is determined that the hard heart not remain part of our story. He is determined that that be undone by his grace. And and, and we need to be very clear, you you are no more condemned by an unbiblical divorce than than someone is justified by a biblical marriage. And that's why, even as Jesus has some challenging things to say in this passage, I think it's amazing what he never says. He never says, in the midst of this whole context, he never says the answer to our marital problems, the answer to our marital failures, is to be a more faithful spouse. He won't say that because he knows that even the best of us can never be that. Because there's only ever been one truly faithful spouse, and that is the Lord Jesus. It's a striking thing that right on the heels of this, te- of this marriage text comes a children text. It's usually the order, marriage, then children. Once again, children enter the scene, and this time the disciples act like bouncers trying to keep, you know, nerds out of the club or whatever. So they jump up, they rebuke these moms and their kids for trying to get close to Jesus. Now Jesus earlier spoke of children, and now they're being brought to him. Uh, And this is new. We're used to the paralyzed, the blind, the sick being brought to Jesus. Now children are being brought to Jesus. And even though they don't share those same afflictions as the paralyzed, the blind, and the sick, they're no less needful. We have a propensity to sentimentalize children, but please know that you know, this is not a picture of you know, parents taking their kids to sit on Santa's lap at the mall and have a cute moment. Uh, these are moms bringing these glorious little image bearers with all their snot and their vomit and their poop and their tantrums, all the mess and the need and the noise and the distraction and the dependency, and putting that in Jesus' lap for blessing. The disciples take a harsh view that these kids are irritating and in the way and unworthy to be in the presence of someone as important as Jesus, much less to be touched by him. 
And to all of that, Jesus is indignant, ticked off at this attempt to keep children from him. He tells them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. It is an indignant response, and you know what else it is? It is an intercessory response. It is as if Jesus is saying, don't you dare keep messy, needy people from me. I welcome them. I, I want them in my lap, in my arms. And with that, you get the full picture, I think. You see, Jesus is confronting in his disciples the same exact thing he confronted in divorce, hardness of heart. The kind of hardness in heart of heart that would keep the weak and the wounded and the sick, of so and sick and sore from Jesus and his grace. You see, here's what's true of all of us. Married, divorced, remarried, single. There is no one here who has not failed in marriage. We have all abandoned the spouse for whom we were made. We have run after other loves with abandon. We have all left the God who made us for himself. We have turned to other gods. We've broken the covenant. And more often than we'd like to admit, we would like to get a hold of our own little certificate and wriggle out of the relationship. There's an entire book in the Bible about this very theme. It's called the book of Hosea. And in it, the Lord calls the prophet Hosea to live out in his own life a picture of what God's relationship is, with, is like with his people. And it is a relationship of a faithful spouse with a deeply unfaithful spouse. He says, go, you know, if you want to know what it's like, go marry a serially unrepentant, adulterous woman. Then you'll know a little something what it's like to be me. But he doesn't leave it there. He says the day is coming when he will redeem his people, and his people will call him my husband. We're all failed in our love. We're all fickle in our commitment. But in Jesus, we have an utterly faithful bridegroom who loves us to the very end. So, you know, whatever your story is, would you lay your heart before him? Can you bring the broken commitments and the failures and the guilt and the shame and the pride and, and come like those messy kids and find grace in your weakness and your woundness and your weariness and sit in his lap? Let him take you in his arms? And when you, when you do that, you, you find your husband. You find a spouse who's not going anywhere, uh, who assures us that he is ours no matter what, that we are his no matter what. You know, wildly, that's exactly where the passage ends, not with what we need to give to him, not with us showing him our faithfulness, but with what he gives to us. And actually, it's not just his faithfulness, it's the totality of himself, like a husband. I am wholly yours. And he urges us not only to receive him, but he tells us how. He says, do it like a child. You know what I've noticed? I mean, kids are so much better at receiving gifts than adults. You know, grown-ups are like, oh, no, no, I, I don't need anything. You know, I, they're dignified. Oh, no, please. I'm, you know, grown-ups, when they open the present, they're trying to preserve the paper for the next year and the tape and all the stuff. And kids don't do that. Kids not only take gifts gladly, they take them greedily. They grab it out of your hands. on. They're up at four in the morning on Christmas, ready for their gifts. They will grab those gifts out of your hand. They will rip that paper. They will be shameless about it. And you know what they want after they've gotten all their gifts? 
More gifts. And, and I just want to see here, Jesus urges that for us. He encourages that to come to him, you know, I want to say kind of greedily. Not with low expectations, but with high expectations. Not, not with just what you hope to eke out of life, get away with, manage on your own, but grace, lavish, grace for the needy, grace for the, grace for the messy, grace for the broken. I don't know your particular story, but I do know what is part of everyone's story, and more critically, so does Jesus. And he says that in coming to him, you'll find him to be the faithful spouse for whom all our hearts long. So let's remember that as we go to his table. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, you are um, you're the only faithful one. Um, it's, it's easy to lose sight of that. It's easy to fall off one side of the horse or the other and to become either intolerably puffed up, imagining, you know, we are the faithful ones, or to, or to just get crushed and depressed and despair and think there, there's no way you could deal with us. And you know what? You, you take the totality of that mess. You, you love us in our pride, you love us in our despair, and you are grace, gracious to give us not just things, not just qualities, you give us yourself like a husband, like the truly faithful spouse for whom our souls long. And so, Lord, uh, would you remind us of that? And, and, you know, I want to say it very deep, maybe visceral ways as we come to the table, you know, where we don't come up here with our offerings, with our professions of, you know, faithfulness, and we don't stay away either because, you know, we feel like we've screwed up too badly or our story is already written. It's not. You are, you are, you are gracious to take all of our hardened hearts, all of our unclean hearts, and to soften them and to cleanse them and to feed us at this table. And Lord, it's no small coincidence that this table pictures the gathering we will have in the end when the context of it will be, we'll be at the table with our, our bridegroom, gathered as your bride, as your church. It'll be a wedding feast. So Lord, um, feed us here. Uh, sustain us in this life, Lord. Grow us in the gospel to greater dependence on your faithfulness and make us fit for the life to come that we would not lose sight of our great Savior and King. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.